We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite. The police released their only suspect in the mass murder of film star Sharon Tate and four others. Late last night, another bizarre murder in Los Angeles, the second in two days. The owner of a small supermarket chain found in his home, his head covered by a white hood, a meat fork stuck in his chest. His wife, 38-year-old Mrs. Lino LaBianca, found in the bedroom dead, her back brutally cut by a whip. He's inside, two bodies outside. They came and went, and the number varied from 20 to 30. Police said they were a pseudo-religious cult. People who worked on the ranch said they were heavy users of drugs. Were lurid. The movie actress was Sharon Tate, 26. The others were a male hairdresser, the heiress to a coffee fortune, a writer, and a boy just out of high school. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they called Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. Those arrested are two women and one man, and the Los Angeles police said they would ask murder indictments against several others. Five women are being held as material witnesses. They called themselves the family. Los Angeles has had another multiple murder. Last night, a middle-aged couple was stabbed to death in a case that has striking similarities to the mass murder Saturday of actress Sharon Tate and four friends. We're taking dolls and stealing cars, and just, they just sit around all day in peace, and that's about it. And they went around collecting garbage and had that for dinner and went to the store once in a while, and that was about it. They just left and got loaded. People who lived with Manson on the ranch and in the desert denied that they were a violent group. They called themselves the family. again to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten, and as you can tell from the opening to this week's show, we are going to be covering the Tate-Liabianca murders, which were perpetrated by Charles Manson and his so-called family. However, before we get into this week's case, we have our normal plugs. If you would like to follow myself or the show on social media, that would be Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, YouTube. All you need to do is look for Ian Totten, author, or The Deathcast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter or Truth Media, just look for Corpse Creek. If you are interested in signing up for the show's official mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. While there, please consider donating to the show on the by clicking on the donate button. 
You can also find autographed copies of two of my six novels there. If you are interested in finding any of my written works, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash totten books. And if you are interested in becoming a Patreon member of the show, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can help offset the costs of producing this show and putting it out onto the internet for everyone to hear. If you enjoy this show, please consider sharing it on social media, but certainly go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Also, please consider leaving a five-star review. If you don't like the show, that's okay. Move along. We don't need any of your negativity here. And if you have a suggestion for a case you'd like to hear me cover, you can go to Ian at CorpseCreekPublishing.com. Just drop me a line there. I will respond to you and take any suggestions under consideration. Lastly, I'm still getting a ton of feedback on the Jimmy Saville series that I did, and I couldn't be more pleased with the response. Um, it really is something that I've I, I put a whole lot into putting that series out, as well as researching it for about 10 years and it's really makes me feel good to know that there are so many people out there who appreciate the effort that I put into it. And if you are unable to get enough of the melodious sounds of my voice, you can find me on other podcasts. I have been on the Opperman Report twice now with host Private Investigator Ed Opperman. I've been on the Michael right side show and just recently i was on the stick to wrestling podcast with john mcadam which is produced and distributed by my friends over at arcadian vanguard so go and search that one out i had a whole lot of fun doing it and i look forward to doing it again all right now that all of the plugs are out of the way find yourself somewhere nice and comfortable to sit Kick back, relax, put your feet up, grab yourself a drink. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go to the crypt. Alright, so now we are covering the Tate LaBianca murders as perpetrated by Charles Manson and his followers. A couple of disclaimers before we get into the case, however. This is a case that has captivated not only America, but really the world for over 50 years. And I want it to be known, there is stuff that I am either going to overlook or miss, and I don't want people jumping on me for that. Again, this is a case that has been dissected, bisected, trisected, thousands of times and that's one of the reasons that a lot of podcasts are unwilling to cover it because there has been so much said about it before by so many different people the consensus among a lot of podcasters is why am I going to cover something a that's been beaten to death and 
be that is going to get me negative feedback no matter how good of a job I do. And that's a valid fear on the part of us podcasters. However, as anybody who has been listening to this show for any length of time knows, 99% of the time I have my own take on these cases using all of the available information and evidence that is available. So I'm going to attempt to tell the story of Manson, his followers, and the murders that they committed as succinctly as I can. Again, I'm going to miss certain things and skip over things, and if it's something that you think is massively important to this case, please feel free to reach out. Don't be a dick about it. Just say, hey, you missed this part here. I think you should cover it. But I'm also covering this case because it is one of my absolute favorites. And people will poo-poo on this. I'm sorry, but Susan Atkins was a hottie there. I said it. I got it out of the way because I know there's people out there who know this and know that I believe that who get a kick out of it. It's true. She was smoking hot. Don't care what anyone says. Now to the case itself. I thought we would do this one a little differently and look at each crime individually, but also go over who these people were that were murdered before we really dive into the what, when, where, and why of things. This way, we can kind of see how everyone's lives converged on these two infamous nights and led them to the point where Manson sent his followers out to draw blood in his name. First individual we're going to look at is Jay Sebring, who was born Tom Jonas Cummer on October 10, 1933, in Birmingham, Alabama. Sebring was the son of an accountant by the name of Bernard Cummer, while his mother's name was Margaret. And at some point during Sebring's upbringing, the family moved to Detroit, and he had one brother and two sisters, Sebring served in the Navy for four years and, at least according to some accounts, actually fought in the Korean War before getting out and returning to the States, at which point he moved to Los Angeles and, with roughly $500 in his pocket, he went to hairdresser's school and graduated after which he opened up his first salon on Fairfax Avenue. And at this point, Sebring was still known by his birth name. From what I could find, it was at this point that Sebring officially changed his name to J. Sebring, the J taken from the middle initial of his name, and Sebring named after the race that took place Place annually in Sebring, Florida. And Sebring really had a 
meteoric rise. He catches on with the movie stars. Not long after that, he begins to develop his own hair care products and starts teaching others his method of cutting hair, which proved so popular that he ends up franchising J. Sebring salons all across California. Some articles state that even 40 years after his death, people were still teaching the method of hairstyling that Sebring taught, which was pretty much shampooing men's hair, cutting their hair with scissors as opposed to clippers, and using blow dryers, which up until that point really had only caught on overseas in Europe. With this newfound fame, Sebring really became something of a ladies' man around California. He was known to have dated various stars and models and business executives. The one he is remembered for the most, however, is Sharon Tate. Sharon Marie Tate was born on January 24, 1943 in Dallas, Texas. She was the oldest of three daughters born to Colonel Paul James Tate, who was a U.S. Army officer who eventually went on to work in the intelligence division of the U.S. Army. Not necessarily massively important. I bring it up because there are many, many, many conspiracy theories involving Sharon Tate, her father, as well as the Laurel Canyon music scene because so many of the individuals who came out of that scene were the children of individuals who worked for the government, specifically in the intelligence division. Sharon's mother, Doris, from a pretty early age, had her oldest child participating in various beauty contests, uh, if you, you think back to somewhat like the jean Bernay Ramsey case, that was similar to how Doris Tate was with her daughter when she was young. She realized her daughter was exceptionally beautiful and started getting her involved in all of these pageants and what have you. Because of Paul Tate's job being in the military, the family moved around quite often, usually every two to four years when he was sent to a new duty station. Because of this, it's been said that Sharon grew up to be a somewhat shy child who had difficulty forming friendships, which... You know, I have to imagine it would have been if you're only in an area for a few years and then you're off, you know, on the run again. You really can't form any roots or any bonds with those around you because you know that 
as soon as dad gets a new set of orders, you're going to be sent off somewhere else to live. To give you an idea of how chaotic her upbringing was, from 55 to 58, she attended Chief Joseph Middle School. From 58 to 59, she attended Richland High School in Richland, Washington. Then Irvin High School in El Paso, Texas from late fall of 59 to April of 1960. And then finally, Vincenza American High School in Vincenza, Italy from 1960 until June of 1961, at which point Sharon graduated from high school. Despite of all of this chaos with the moving and having to try and form new friendships, Sharon continued to participate in beauty pageants. One of the reasons for this was people constantly were commenting on her looks, and I have to imagine that this was a way that she could feel uh, as though she were a part of things by going and being in these pageants and, you know, being accepted because of how she looked. It's been said that while at school in Italy, Sharon found herself for the first time feeling at home as the other students in the school came from similar backgrounds, were used to moving around much as she was, and that because of this, she was able to form friendships. This was helped in part because a photograph of her wearing a bikini was published on the cover of a Stars and Stripes magazine. This gives you some inkling as to how different Times were back then versus now. If a publication were to po post a sexualized image of a, you know, 16 year old girl on their cover and market it towards predominantly adult males, they would be slaughtered in the media. But back in 1960 61, that was not the case. And Sharon found herself to be something of a local celebrity because of this. While living in Italy, Sharon and a few of her friends found out that a movie by the name of Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man, starring Paul Newman, Susan Stroudsburg, and Richard Beimer was being filmed, and they were able to get parts as extras in this film. And it was at this point that Sharon was bitten by the acting bug. According to lore, actor Richard Beimer ended up being smitten by Sharon during production of the film. And the two of them began dating, and it was Beimer who recommended that she pursue a career in acting. And he did this solely based upon her looks. She ended up getting cast in the television series The Pat Boone Chevy Showroom, which was being filmed in Venice. And this 
further entrench Sharon in the idea that she should become an actress. With the filming of the movie Barabbas, starring Jack Palance, again, Tate was cast as an extra, and Palance was so taken by her looks that he ended up arranging for Sharon to have a screen test done in Rome. And spoiler alert, Sharon, despite the new narrative that's out there concerning her, was not a good actress. She got parts based solely on her looks, and this screen test led to nothing. Somewhere in all of this, when Sharon was age 17, she was apparently raped by a soldier while out on a date. This is coming from her future husband, Roman Polanski, who claimed that Sharon had told him this during their very first date. Whether this is true or not, I have no way of knowing. But knowing how the military is and how the times were back then, I'm going to err on the side of caution and state that this probably did take place, and this more likely than not further pushed Sharon into her shell of shyness and later would make it so difficult for her to have a really commanding presence on the screen, but also to have a really commanding presence in her personal life. Sharon was something of a wallflower. She was there to be seen and not heard. And unfortunately, most of the men who would end up becoming involved in her life treated her like this. This goes for Polanski as well. She was more of an object than she was an actual person. And I have to imagine that this event taking place when she was 17 has to have helped reinforce that, you know, mental stigma she had that blocked her from really bursting out. And for all we know, there may have been other incidents earlier on in her life that we're not aware of. Again, Sharon was fairly attractive and Unfortunately for her and many hundreds of thousands of other women, rape was something that you didn't talk about that back then, and if you did talk about it, it was never the male's fault. It was always the female's. She must have done or said something to lead him on, the way she dressed, yada, 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 yada. There was really a stigma attached to sexual assaults that placed the blame solely on the shoulders of the women. Back to Sharon, a lot of the information that I am giving you comes from Anne Sanders' book, Sharon Tate, A Life, and the reason that I am going with his tale of events as opposed to others is Sanders does extremely detailed work, and he's very meticulous about his research of the subjects that he is covering, more so than many others who have covered this series of murders. According to Sanders, 
Richard Bymar had told Sharon that she would be able to get in with his agent back in California. So when she graduated from high school, she told her parents, look, I'm not going to be going to college. I'm actually going to go back to the States and see if I can make a go of this acting thing, to which both of her parents strongly objected. Uh, Sharon told them that she would live off of her savings and her bonds until she was able to make it. Around the time that the family was having this discussion, Paul Tate was given a promotion and was set to be transferred to San Pedro, California, which is south of Los Angeles. Because of this, Sharon was able to convince her parents to allow her to go ahead of them, at least for a few months, so that she could make an attempt at getting her feet wet in the acting world. Unfortunately for all involved, they had no idea of the things that were to come concerning young Sharon. She ended up going to L.A., and there are a few articles concerning Richard Bymore, and Sharon is named as his girlfriend in these. However, she was unable to make any significant headway, and this coupled with her mother Doris reportedly suffering a nervous breakdown over her fears for her daughter led to Sharon returning to Italy to be with her family until they eventually moved. We'll get back into Sharon Tate in just a moment. From Ian Totten, best-selling author of The House of Silver Dolls, The Blood Gods Trilogy, Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Karo Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told him of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. 
in the early part of 1962, the Tate family finally left Italy and landed in California, sailing aboard the USS Independence. Of interest with all of this is this is really the point that Sharon's father begins to make major headway in his intelligence career as he was a major at this point when he was stationed to Fort MacArthur. So he was fairly high up the food chain, so to speak. After returning to the States for a second time, Sharon ended up meeting with Richard Bymar's agent, a man by the name of Hal Gefsky. This ended up leading Sharon to be casting in a few commercials, one of which was a ad for Chevy automobiles, and another was for Santa Fe cigars. Intermingled with these sporadic acting jobs, Sharon took work in a wine bar. In April of 1963, Hal Gefsky, who you'll remember was Sharon's agent, ended up getting her an audition for a Filmways production company television show called Petticoat Junction. This in turn led to Sharon being introduced to the head of Filmways, Martin Ransahoff, who was known for taking relatively unknowns and turning them into world-famous starlets. In fairly short order, Sharon was put under contract to Filmways for seven years at $750 a month, which in 1963 was, I have to imagine, a fairly decent amount money. One thing that Filmways did with Sharon was they started to get her bit parts in television shows while really keeping her away from the camera for the most part. And this was because, as I stated earlier, Sharon was all sizzle and no steak when it came to her acting ability. There wasn't much underneath the hood. So much so that Filmways ended up sending her to New York for acting lessons at the Lee Strasberg School of Acting, which she was unable to complete. Some of the other lessons that she was instructed to take included lessons on how to walk, talk, act, and dress, which is something that is still done with people in Hollywood to this day. Most people for some reason, just think that they come across the way they do because that's just who they are. No, these people are instructed on how they are to behave well out in public, and Sharon was no exception to this rule. She was really a nobody from a military family. While all of this is going on, Filmways gets Sharon cast as an extra in the Wheeler Dealers and the Americanization of Emily, two films from that period. Interesting to note at this period of time 
is that Sharon begins to get involved in various relationships with actors and up-and-coming actors, all of whom are fairly domineering, and again, all of whom are fairly into the party scene in Los Angeles. It really, this is the beginning of Sharon Tate losing that innocence that has continually been projected around her. She was running with some pretty heavy people as far as drug use is concerned, even as early in her career as 1963-64. Unfortunately for her, as the years continue to roll on, it's only going to get more lurid and dark. As you will see when Roman Polanski comes into her life, he brought in a whole different ball game with him that has been hinted at and written about for decades. One of these men was Philip Forquet Viscount de Dorn. Apparently was a member of the French royalty who ended up giving up his heritage at least for a brief period of time in order to pursue an acting career that from what I could find, really didn't go very far. After this, Sharon ends up having a walk-on part on Mr. Ed, followed by a series of recurring roles on the Beverly Hillbillies. Sharon ended up getting engaged to the French nobility that she was seeing and it ended up at least from what I can tell being broken up by her parents as well as the head of film wave. Supposedly there are stories out there that this individual with whom she was engaged beat Sharon to such an extent that she required hospitalization on numerous occasions, although these come mostly from tabloids, and least that I have seen, there are no actual police or hospital records to back any of this up. However, as we talked about earlier, she was drawn to domineering men, so there may be some sliver of truth in this. Maybe, for all we know, he, you know, smacked her with the back of his hand or something to of that regard. For him to be beating her to the point that she required hospitalization, you would imagine there would be some phot photographic evidence depicting this if not scarring to her face and body as a result of, you know, severe traumatic assaults. Somewhere around this period of time where the families are really up in arms about this relationship between Sharon and Felipe, they ended up breaking up, although I haven't been able to 
find any reason as to the why of it. Sharon ended up living in an apartment with another aspiring actress who was under contract, this time to Universal Studios, by the name of Sheila Wells. By a number of accounts, Wells and Sharon were the best of friends, at least up until the time of Sharon's murder. And Wells really has helped form this vision of Sharon Tate, of this sweet, unassuming young woman who's been thrust into Hollywood and is slowly having her innocence stripped away from her bit by bit. In somewhere in 1964, uh, Ransom off the producer, owner of Filmways, ends up arranging for Sharon to have a photo shoot done, the first she had ever participated in. This in an effort to help build her portfolio. And during this period of time, during this photo shoot, the man taking the pictures, who was known as something of a nudist and a user of women convinces Sharon to disrobe for the first time. This caused a bit of a kerfluffle between Ransonoff and this particular photographer as he did not want images of his newest find completely naked floating around. He had seen what it had done er to other female in the movie industry, the controversy it caused, as well as how it was used by the individuals who had taken the pictures to further their own careers and put money into their pockets. So Ransomoff ended up demanding that these photographs be returned, to which the photographer refused. And I hate to say it, I cannot help but that this is not the first time that someone made demands of her in this regard in Hollywood. You've heard the stories of the, the casting couch, as it's been called. Even back in the 60s, there, Harvey Weinstein-type individuals were the norm, not the exception. So I have no doubt that even as innocent as she has been portrayed that Sharon more likely than not was forced or coerced into doing things that she did not want to do in order to further her career. It is telling how she was viewed within the industry when individuals such as Steve McQueen began dating her and there was a whole slew of others major Hollywood stars who basically used her for as eye candy and would drop her name in various articles where they were interviewed. This really is how Sharon's career was going up through the 64 into 65, bouncing from one man to the another well, 
appearing sporadically in guest-starring roles on television shows such as the Beverly Hillbillies. Then she met Jay Sebring, who, by all accounts, was absolutely smitten with her when he met her at a party on Thanksgiving evening given by the owner of the Whiskey A Go-Go. By all accounts, Sharon and Jay Sebring were the perfect mesh for one another. He was unlike any other man she was involved with in that he was not demanding, demeaning, or overbearing. And they very quickly escalated their relationship they met somewhere around November of 64. By 1965, they're living together in Sebring's house. And there is talk of them getting married. So you can see this is a really a whirlwind affair. So much so that even later after Polanski weasels his way in. Sebring was always in the picture, which I'm sure is something that Polanski was unhappy about, as like most men, you like to see them yourself as the only man within your woman's life. Uh, however, before all of that, it was Sharon and Jay, and they were really inseparable. One bit of gossip that has come out after Sebring's death, and this comes from his Los Angeles Police Department homicide report. Quote, he was considered a ladies' man and took numerous women to his residence. He would tie the women up with a small sash cord, and if they agreed, would whip them, after which they would have sexual relations. That does paint a much different picture of their relationship, if it's true, we really have no way to know as both of the principals are deceased. However, knowing what we know about Sharon Tate and how she had slowly been stripped of what little innocence that she had when she came to Hollywood, it's not that far-fetched to believe that she would participate in this kind of activity with Sebring. We know that she participated sometimes against her will in much darker activities in the sexual realm. It may have been because of this newfound adventurousness within her love life that Sharon actually began to demand Rancinoff get her better parts than just bit parts on the Beverly Hillbillies. She began, really began to petition him in earnest, trying to break away from television roles and move into film, which she eventually was able to do. And that would eventually be the downfall of her relationship with Jay Sebring, who took the rather unusual step within Hollywood 
to go to Sharon's parents' home the day he planned to propose and asked for their blessing to marry their daughter, which by this point, Colonel Paul Tate agreed to. Although Ransomoff repeatedly tried to sabotage the young couple's relationship, he was unable to do so. Sharon's first film role of any note was in the movie Eye of the Devil, which was a movie about human sacrifice that began filming on September 13th, 1965. Basically, Sharon ended up being cast in the film after once one of the principal actresses was unable to continue filming it. I believe the woman was injured. At any rate, Sharon got the part. They began filming in France and finished up filming in London, at which point she flew back to the United States as her father was leaving for Vietnam. After this, Sharon ends up going back to London, where it's reported that she greatly enjoyed the nightlife, which is a nice way of saying that Sharon was being snared by the spotlight. And it was during this period in London that Sharon ends up meeting Roman Polanski, which we will get into next week, as I'm going to cut it off here because the whole Polanski-Sharon-Tate affair is much too long for a single episode, and we still have to get into Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski and Stephen Tarrant. So, until next week, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.